Hey, this is Rob, and that's Micaiah, and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, Paul Simon's 1986 masterpiece, Graceland. Micaiah, the most recent iteration of the Rolling Stone 500 says this is the 46th best album ever made. What do you think about Graceland? Well, I mean, what's interesting about that is that the 2003 list had it at 81. Then the 2012 list had it at 71. And now it's 40. This is a climber, mm-hmm. which is interesting. And it's one that has historically been problematic from the time it came out. So it looks like with the more distance people have from like the contemporary, you know, controversies, the more people have been like, not that big a deal. I mean, I guess, I mean, it, it, just just looking at those numbers, it seems like people have been very forgiving of the time and place and how it was made. And I mean, we will certainly get into more of that. Um, but yeah, but Enemy, uh, their 500 list had it at 124. Pitchfork has it still in the top 50 at 49 of the, of the 80s. Um, so, you know, it's... It's beloved. All right. This this is a big one that people probably think, and I, well, how was how this just not happening season three? And it's because we're big Paul Simon fans, and knowing we only had to pick one was really hard to do. Yeah. Um, he has an incredible catalog. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Bookends and Bridge Over Troubled Water, the first solo album, this record, and some later stuff. I yeah. mean, so beautiful or so what i think is one of his best albums and it's 2011 i mean up to the end he was putting out some really incredible stuff yeah so but um i guess all roads lead to graceland still again even though we got to the third season before finally talking about this album I actually kind of like that we're talking about this album the same season as we will be talking about Vampire Weekend's Modern Vampires of the City because Vampire Weekend is a modern band that they're fans, huge fans of this album and have talked about the impact that Graceland has had on their music and on what they make and what what they produce because of their great love for this album. So I'm excited that we're we're getting to talk about it in that context, knowing that we'll get to do both albums this season. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, Vampire Weekend on their first album got criticized for the same things Paul Simon did. And, uh, and Paul Simon uh, even chimed in on it too, uh, which is interesting. Somehow it got back to him. So it's going to be interesting I do want to mention something you, you talked about how in the Rolling Stone lists, it has, it has been a climber And one of the things we've talked about the Rolling Stone list, especially comparing the 2003 to the 2020, one of the things that has been true is the diversity of the writers who are contributing to the list in 2020 versus 2003. And it's interesting that the more diverse the writers are, who are contributing to this list, the higher Graceland ends up going. And so there's there's a part of it where I'm sure we'll talk about this in this episode, 
you know, there, there are claims of appropriation, there are claims of, of, you know, problematic issues that have to do with South Africa and the apartheid during the 1980s. It's interesting that this is an album that is only kind of going up, at least based on the Rolling Stone list, in its appreciation. I mean, and it's the, that list is a 2020 list. You know, it it was very telling that they had what's going on at number one instead of a Beatles record in 2020. Um, So in the context of them, like, intentionally making something that reflected the time in which the list was being made, it's interesting that the list also had Graceland at the highest position it's been in in any version of that list. Mm -hmm. I wish um, that they would release something that had every voter and their nominations and how many votes like each record got um, the way like sight and sound just did, you know, redid their 100 greatest movies of all time um, for critics and directors. And they released the list that all of the nominees, you know, are all of the contributors, like every film that they nominated. So you can really see right how it all breaks down. And I wish Rolling Stone would do that. And um, they, they simply don't, um, but it would be interesting to see. Um, so it'd be interesting, you know, cause you know, it's also a diverse body, but I think it's also just a larger voting body. So maybe that, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's hard to say without having the, you know, the, the results of the, of the, of that poll in front of us, but it is interesting nonetheless, um, that at a time where, you know, uh, supposed cancel culture is, um, threatening us all. You know that it is um, one of the historically most kind of problematic albums and doing very well in terms of being um, a critically acclaimed and beloved. Problematic or not, it is a great album. It, it's it is um, it is worthy of its place, and I think worthy of the accolades it has received over time. Um, whether that was, you know, back in 1986, 1987, or even recently. And so I, I think that it's a, it's, it's a good thing we're finally talking about this album, and I'm glad we're going to. And of course, we don't have to talk about this album alone. We have our very first five-time guest, a friend of the pod. Um, we've hung out with him. He is Michael Washburn. And we're going to take a quick break and let you hear from our sponsors, Anchor and Mirror Coffee Roasters. And we will be back with Michael Washburn to talk all things Graceland. I want to take a second and tell you a little bit about Mirror Coffee Roasters. Mirror Coffee Roasters are pursuing excellence from coffee, farm, to cup. They're here to elevate your home coffee experience and help you to reflect what's good. Mirror Coffee Roasters are based in Bellingham, Washington, but they are bringing you the finest coffees from all around the world with sustainability as their first priority. Just three years old, Mirror Coffee Roasters are getting set to launch an entire new lineup of coffees this year. So check them out at mirrorcoffeeroasters.com.
slow day And the sun was beating on the soldiers by the side of the road There was a bright light, a shattering of shop windows The bomb in the baby carriers was wired to the radio These are the days of miracle and wonder This is the long distance call The way the camera follows us in slow-mo The way we look to a song The way we look to a distant constellation That's dying in a corner of the sky These are the days of miracle and wonder And don't cry, baby, don't cry, don't cry He is a friend of the pod, our very first five-time guest. You know him, you love him. We've hung out in person. Uh, he's he's one of our favorite people to talk to about music and all things uh, ridiculous pop culture. He is Michael Washburn coming to you from Louisville, Kentucky, Louisville, Kentucky. I guess Louisville. if you're if you're from if you're from there. Um, And we are here today to talk about Paul Simon's Graceland. And this really was birthed out of a couple comments that you made in our episode last season, the final episode of our season, talking about Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen. And after we had finished recording, we were giving you just a little bit of, you know, albums we expected to be talking about in our third season (laughs) And when we mentioned Paul Simon's Graceland, you immediately kind of perked up. And, and I want to use the two quotes that you that you shared. You said that he is a slippery hero who is a supremely cold artist. Michael Washburn, thanks for being with us. And what on earth did you mean by that? <laughs> Well, I also realized that there was one more quote that I said that you wanted to, to, to include that I pulled you off of, but I'll, I'll go on and add it now. I also called him potentially a psychopath. It is good to be back. I'm so <laughs> excited to have this conversation. Um, I've been thinking about it a lot, not productively. I've been thinking about it. like I've been thinking about this the way that I think about winning the lottery, which is just about the dawning realization and nothing to do with what I'm going to spend the money on. So I might be entirely surfaced tonight, but I'm super stoked to talk about this. What I meant by that is that for someone who is such a major and well-loved, entirely, almost universally beloved artist by people who care about pop music, that there is an incredible lack of affect to a lot of his music, right? I think there's emotion there. And I think that the emotion, like this isn't entirely metabolized and worked through, but I feel like a lot of what carries the feeling in the Paul Simon songs, and it's really apparent some stuff I'll mention in Graceland a little bit later on, isn't real heartfelt. It's It doesn't get so far as being like the, it's not performative, it's not just performance of emotion. I think there's something more there, but I also think there's a little bit of disconnect between what he's saying, how he's saying it, and what that means together. And I realize that's very vague, but there's a piece I wrote <laughs> about for um the rs 500 for um for brad efford yeah for brad efford's thing and this is when i first realized that i was writing a piece about paul simon's first solo record the 1972 eponymous record paul simon which i think is incredible i think it's a really astounding accomplishment but when i listen to it i think that it's just 
and this kind of sets the stage for a lot of the other stuff I think about his career. I find that it just sort of gestures at emotion in a really beautiful, poetic, sophisticated way, but not an overburdened way, but it doesn't in many ways actually engage in that emotion. Right. So in a way it's kind of a reflection, right? People can project onto it, whatever they want to feel, but it's, I, I find him less expressive than I think a lot of people give him credit for. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I said that he's slippery because it's easy to be like, well, that's what he is. Cause he invites that like the, the sonic accessibility of all of his recordings, right. Mm-hmm. makes you want to feel like, you know what it's about, but I feel like there's a lot of projection onto Paul Simon being like this. Let's look at this album in a discussion tonight. A lot of folks think that's a super happy boppy album, right? It's not. Like, it's an album of devastation and dislocation and estrangement mm-hmm. that you also can't dance to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's another thing I think about that. Well, anyway, so that's what those, a bunch of that, those are things that I meant by that, which were offhand comments that perhaps I was being somewhat provocative to get you to select me to come talk about that album. But I also want to say that Paul Simon and Graceland in particular were incredibly formative in whatever artistic development I have. His artistry and his language, his use of language, his facility with language have been very instrumental to the way I think about literature, broadly speaking. So it's not like I'm trying to drag him. I just think that he's, yeah, we'll talk about, I mean, well. Think of two things, because I want to, one, I've never heard anyone talk about Paul Simon like they talk about early David Byrne, kind of this like observer of like everyday life from like an outside perspective this kind of like inhuman kind of way of looking as like, Oh, people eating, people walking. Uh, it's kind of the way you make Paul Simon sound, which I think is interesting. Um, and I guess the two of them are kind of similar in terms of like their tastes, um, looking for like African polyrhythms to kind of redefine their, their sounds by the eighties. But then, um, I also think of Paul Simon on Sesame street in the early seventies, there's a video if you can find now of him playing me and Julio down by the schoolyard. And there's the little black girl who's, I guess, supposed to be singing with him, but she goes and kind of does her own thing. And it it's filmed like a really cute moment where this girl is, is just being like free to sing what she wants. And it's just like this kind of beautiful moment. But then every time they cut to Paul Simon, you kind of see in his eyes, like, She's messing up my song. <laughs> like it's 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 very much I think what you're talking about. Um, that video from Sesame Street. I mean, so like she was Garfunkel in that moment, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The burn comparison you brought—that's I hadn't I hadn't thought about it in quite that way. I think he's just um, it's like that's David Burns' project at certain points in his career, right? Mm-hmm. To have that sort of observational disposition toward other people in everyday life, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's probably not right. You know him better than me. But with Simon, it's like he's uh, he's cannibalizing himself, right? And there's a bit of clinical distance <laughs> in the heartache, and. I, 
I don't know. Like it's not, this is not like a totally cooked thought, but I, it's, there are like, I feel like I, I don't want to jump too deep into the catalog right now, mm-hmm. but I will say that there, I feel like the key to what I'm saying and the key to a lot of what I think Paul Simon's really about is in the song hearts and bones. Oh, cool. And, uh, it's a great song. Mm-hmm. There's two great songs on that album. There's that and trains in the distance. I would say that to really listen to the best version of it, you get to the 91 concert in the park recording. Cause they're, superior live than they are on that somewhat hobbled through production record but there's the point where the character the woman he's married to says um why can't you love me for who i am where i am and then paul simon says because that's not the way the world works baby or that's not the way the world is baby right and it's like that's it and it's like all this shit that he's writing about he brings upon himself because he's super cold and entirely un accommodating and uncompromising. The Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar. I am following the river down the highway through the cradle of the Civil War. I'm going to Graceland, Graceland, to Memphis, Tennessee. I'm going to Graceland. something that begins with the solo stuff that begins in the 80s where do you see like is that also in simon and garfunkel or where do you see that kind of really i find it becoming much more apparent in the solo work and increasingly apparent in the solo work i don't see it so much in the simon and garfunkel work Mm -hmm. um like one like you could psychologize and be like you know the relationship with kathy right that relationship undergirds what two or three of the Mm-hmm. greatest songs in the American songbook that he wrote mm-hmm. that obviously didn't end well, you know? Right. Um, and so like, maybe he's been reeling from that heartbreak for the rest of his life. Like I'm sure, well, at least for me, like there's been moments that I look back on in my early life. that are like heartbreaks that I think, would well, I ever really recover? Has there been some deformation I've been suffering through or with that entire time since then? Mm-hmm. And not just like my life and my wife now, but it could be that, you know, that blocking himself off from the emotional connection 
and the potential for hurt could have created this sort of insularity that I'm gesturing at. Of course, like mm-hmm. we don't know. And in this but record, we have the relationship with Carrie Fisher. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And also. Well, know. and she's the hearts and bones character. Or she says mm-hmm. she's the hearts and bones. She says she's the hearts and bones character. She's, I think she might even be the trains in the distance character. And she claims to be the Graceland character who yeah. brushes her hair from her forehead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If I'm honest, I don't know that I fully understand the the kind of half-cooked thought. There's something I think you're saying that I agree with, but I may just be thinking the thing in my head and, and then placing it over what you have said. There is an impersonal distance mm-hmm. to to his music. And weirdly enough, it of all the people that, you know, have close relationships with Paul Simon, Paul Simon has had an oddly close, intimate, unique friendship with Lorne Michaels. <laughs> it's not and, crazy. And, and weirdly enough, like both of them strike me that same way. Mm-hmm. Like, Oh yeah. Like, like talented, beloved people, but like not really thought of as being like emotionally available or vulnerable in many ways. I mean, like everything is kind of kept at, at, a, at professional distance. Mm-hmm. And so there, there is something he is such a gift. Paul Simon is such a gifted songwriter and he is so good at, you know, being fascinated in a genre and then figuring out what he would need to do that genre, to perform that genre. And, that, and I think that's also so much of what informs both Graceland and uh, Rhythm of the Saints mm-hmm. is this thing of being like, oh, I like that. I can do that. Like, I'm, I'm a talented enough musician to do that. It does feel dispassionate. It, it does. It does feel like the scientist in the lab that wants to see if he can, you know, that if he can get the mix just right. If he can, you know, oh, here's, you know, two parts, this one part, like it, it feels somewhat disconnected from being mean, being especially meaningful to him. Like, and, and maybe mm. that, that might be putting, putting it on him, but like, I don't know how much Paul Simon's success or celebrity or even like, record sales or a claim that he gets from different albums. I don't know how much it matters to him. It, it like it, it seems to be, can I do this? Can I, can I figure it out? And so if that's a little bit of what you're referring to that kind of like, what do you make of this person? Cause you know, Bob Dylan, I think I feel like is just as impersonal in so much of his music, but the difference is Bob Dylan says everything, you know, he sings everything he sings with so much authenticity even though it is all kind of the the same slippery hero, like trying to figure out mm. who exactly Dylan is. Simon almost lacks that authenticity when he sings some of these things. I, yeah, I mean, the distance is, yeah, I think so you're, you're yeah, I think you're right. The, what you're mapping onto what I said is not in conflict, but one of the things that you just said makes me think that perhaps I'm being unfair to Simon and I should be more critical of Simon fans. Mm. Like, who I think end up greeting it as much more authentic anguished expression than it actually is. And so I see people. And so my question to you is, do you think that the coldness and the distance, the professionalism, however you just characterized them, is that, is that you sharing an opinion with me or is that you expressing what you think is the general opinion? Because that doesn't feel like the general opinion to me. I, I could just be entirely off base 
I, I also don't know. So, but that's the thing. I don't know if there is a universal, like general opinion about Paul Simon, like for as, for as well-known of an artist as he is, there are so many, you know, huge artists. And, and, and again, like you said, I mean, here, here is a guy who maybe two, three, four of the songs that would be in the kind of American songbook. He is a songwriter for, and even given that I, I don't know that he has this kind of universally understood persona that, and, and maybe that's just me, maybe, maybe for, for, you know, if it was my mom, we were talking to, maybe that would be entirely different. She would tell you, you know, Oh, because she remembers when, when Simon and Garfunkel broke up and kind of <clears throat> what a jerk Simon ended up coming across as in that whole process. Like, but I, for me, I just don't know that, so, so I think I'm saying what I think about Paul Simon. I don't know if I'm the right person to say what like the general view of Paul Simon is. I think that's fair. And I'm not either. She looked me over and I guess she thought I was all right. All right in the sort of a limited way for an off night. She said, don't I know you from the cinematographer's party? I said, who am I to blow against the wind? I know what I know I've seen what I've said We come and we go That's the thing that I keep in the back of my head I know what I know I've seen what I've said We come and we go That's the thing that I keep in the back of my head She said there's something about you That really reminds me of money girl that could say things that weren't that funny I said what does that mean I really remind you of money she said oh, who am I to blow against the wind I know what I know Let's since, since since we're not going to be able, I think, to uh, between the three of us uh, unpack uh, the person Paul yeah, Simon. Unpack the person of Paul Simon. Let's talk about. I mean, and there is a ton to unpack about this record. Let's talk about the record Graceland, and again, you know, kind of a little background to it. You know, seventh seventh solo album. You know, Carrie Fisher and in him have. The the marriage has fallen apart. They're you know separated, if not divorced. Um, you know, hearts and bones. Although you know, it, I, I think it's an album that suffers from bad production. Um, though there are a few good songs on it, and then he essentially decides, all right, I have gotten into these tapes of South African street musicians let's go to Johannesburg and spend two weeks meeting with people in recording South African musicians during the time of apartheid white musician goes to South Africa, records a bunch of black musicians, comes back to the United States, records some more pieces, releases an album that is, you know, pretty immediately um, celebrated sells millions of copies wins the grammy for album of the year um 
you know, regularly cited as one of the best albums of the 80s, maybe the best of his solo career, if not the best of his entire career. Then there's the pushback. How did you do this? I thought we were all united against apartheid. Isn't this, you mean, so that there's all of these things that kind of circle around this album. So what do we do with these? What, what do we do as listeners today in the 21st century? And what did listeners do in the eighties when the album came out in 1986, when the album came out with the kind of problematic aspects of this album? And is there a way for us to reconcile all of those things? I'll start by saying that, in, in continuation of the previous conversation that another thing about Paul Simon, I think that, you know, we've kind of known with Simon and Garfunkel and we definitely know by this time is that he is a guy that his main objective is to serve his vision. And like, I think that's a lot of what Graceland is. It's just like, okay, well we're doing like a boycott. He's just like, yeah, but I gotta get these songs out of me. It's just but, like, but I want okay. these musicians. You know, you know, it's just like, oh, wow. Because even the way it was introduced, I mean, what I read on Wikipedia was that there was a, another young artist who was like, I want to make a record like this. And he was like, Heidi Berg. Yeah. And then he was like, actually, I'm going to make a record like that. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, though. You know, so it's just like, okay, so that's already a pretty complicated origin. And then, yeah, so during the boycott goes there. Um, and, and he knew it was problematic at the time because he's like, I'm not playing any shows for wide audiences. Um, but then it's complicated that he has Linda Ronstadt on there because she had done that. And then he has to defend her. And it's interesting when you look at the LP, like the back cover art is just all text pretty much of him being like, this is what I did. This is where I went. This is what this song is kind of about. And this is who's on it. Like really kind of like, justifying why this album had to be made in his mind and why it's okay that he made it. So he was like very aware that this was going to be seen as something that was uh, offensive, I guess. (laughs) I mean, there are a couple of issues, right? And one is, I feel like the, the controversy of violating the South African apartheid boycott has faded. And then there's the issue of appropriation. Right, which is a separate issue. Yeah. And I I feel like I probably had a really strong, I would have had a really strong opinion back in 1986 mm-hmm. about this. Um, I'm having a hard time mustering up any pure outrage at Paul Simon violating the boycott because I look, I don't know anything about this, right? This is just instinct. But I don't think that we really know exactly what causes regimes to fall, repressive regimes. And I don't think we really definitely don't know if it is a matter of multinational boycotts or the violation of those boycotts that actually get the voice of the people who are being oppressed out and bring more attention to it. Right. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Like, I think that's fair. He did do something by that violated what I think of who thought they were the right thinking people, right? Like the righteous regime thought he was doing something wrong, but he wasn't playing sun city. You know, he sang on where all the world, a couple weeks for he then disregarded. He went to it. Who did he go to? Um, 
He went to Harry Belafonte to ask he, him his opinion about. He went what to he Belafonte he and then ignored their Jones. advice. Yeah. yeah, and ignored their advice. So he knew that he was. This is I'm, I'm backing into agreeing with you. I think that yes, <laughs> edit all of this. He definitely is a guy that serves his vision. But as far as indicting him for letting his vision supersede a boycott, I'm not sure if I feel too bad about that. Mm-hmm. I don't think his violation kept apartheid going. And I think his violation might have made some modest impact on the cessation of the apartheid regime in South Africa. God, I don't believe I just said that. I'm just talking like a white guy on a podcast talking out his ass. <laughs> well, you know, because I mean, they're, I mean, first by the of way, all, that, that is what our podcast is now. We, well, it's what podcasts are. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where, I mean, this, I guess this kind of comes into the appropriation thing too, where it's a, it's like a really flimsy political statement to even make the record, but also people listening to the record who know nothing about South Africa, right? Know that Paul Paul Simon made an album partially in South Africa with musicians from South Africa and is writing about it on the back of the LP. There is more awareness of the culture and probably more of an outrage like, wow. So like, cause it's not, it's not the same as the civil rights movement. All right. So, uh, in the, in the U S so on one hand, it probably, you know, creates some awareness and people being like, well, you know, more, more of an outrage being like, how can this be happening in South Africa when there's so much beauty and wonder in, in, in these musicians and in these people, you know, it's, oh, you can't measure that. Um, but I get that is the, a lot of, you know, what people hope that art, can do um it's just he also didn't use the album to make any overt political statements which i think is what also confused people uh someone who during the 60s did cover and write some protest songs and then in his big moment goes to south africa and doesn't write anything overtly political and just kind of allows the fact that he did it to make its own statement for people to impose on either side of that issue which i think is ballsy in a very passive way (laughs) I was having this discussion in a taxi heading downtown rearranging my position on this friend of mine who had a little bit of a breakdown I said hey you know breakdowns common breakdowns go so what are you gonna do about it that's what I'd like to know you don't feel you could love me but I feel in the early morning hours when I fell into a phone call Believing I had supernatural powers, I slammed into a brick wall I said, hey, is this my problem? Is this my fault? If that's the way it's gonna be, you wanna call the whole thing to a halt You don't feel you could love me, but I feel you You don't feel you can love me, but I feel you
I was walking down the street when I thought I heard this voice say, Say, ain't we walking down the same street together on the very same day? I said, Hey, senorita, that's astute. I said, Why don't we get together and call ourselves an institute? You don't feel you can love me, but I feel you can. You don't feel you can love me, but I feel you So I, I think the other thing you brought up, which is which is maybe I think the more important question for us to talk about is is it appropriation? Because this is a this is a Paul Simon album that sold 16 million copies with almost entirely black musicians mm-hmm. in doing music born out of African communities and cultures of which Paul Simon is not a part. I think that is probably the the much heavier or much more serious question that we that we still need to kind of address and maybe wrestle with a little bit today. Before we go into that, I want to say a couple of things. And as you're as you guys were speaking, I was thinking, well, this sort of um, ambivalence to the world in pursuit of one's own gratification <laughs> is in many ways what I think is kind of the root of all this heartbreak and all the songs. Right. So yeah, he did it just to go be the artist and he cared about the sounds. Right. Um, and that's probably why a lot of his marriages ended, but that's also why he did this and did not care. I think that the political considerations are grafted on after the fact. I don't just for the record, I know none of us want to be um, accused of minimizing the horrors of, of the apartheid regime in South Africa. So to talk about Paul Simon as having an impact on it already almost immediately minimizes it. And that's just, we're talking about an album and this is related to the history of that album, just to be clear. But I do think that there's a big, just for the last thing I want to say about this, there's a big difference between going there, learning songs from people, collaborating with people, recording with people who got credit, who were paid well above scale, which Mm -hmm. is what he always does, where they were flown to New York and that then in in the example of Ladysmith and had their entire careers created because of this yeah. isn't, I don't think that sort of behavior, that sort of activity is the, in the spirit of the stuff that the boycott was trying to keep at bay. Yeah. I agree with that. So just as a final comment on that, the, the other thing I don't want to be the first person to speak on because I just talked a lot. Well, the other thing about that too is there's the issue of like, okay, well, even though he went down there to to be with all those musicians, he probably stayed at like, where did he stay? Where did he go to eat and all of that? Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there, there are other implications outside of the album, yeah. you know? Um, so he still got to go down there with the privilege, privilege of a white person and yeah. just go in and out of those spaces, you know? So that's, you know, but again, that's a good that's, point something now that I don't think people care about, but in the eighties people surely cared. But I think of this like big thief now announced that they're going to play like a, a year ago. Now, I guess they're like, we're going to go play show in Israel because someone in our band is from, from Israel. And it's important for us to like go to where he's from and like play a show. Um, and we're going to donate the money to like 
you know, uh, to Palestine. And people are just like, you guys are terrible. And then so like a week later, they're like, we're not going to Israel anymore. You know, so it's just like, it, it's, it is an issue that like, it's still coming up uh, mm-hmm. and, and treated differently, maybe because of the precedent that, that Paul Simon has said. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> to the point you're making, Michael, I do think that if anything kind of confirms your your supremely cold artist quote, like I, I think that might be it. Like just this sense of like, here's what I want to do. And mm-hmm. I, I kind of don't care about the implications. Uh, like, like, I don't care what the United Nations and Quincy Jones say. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I got to do diamonds on the soles of her shoes. Yeah. And, and, and so just that thing of like, a a pursuit a pursuit of his vision that um that disregards the feelings of other people so i mean i i think that i think that might be a a, i think that might be the best kind of agreement to your your quote because that that does seem supremely cold but also the kind of thing that only someone who is kind of selfishly obsessive about his own artistic vision would do. Mm. Um, In terms of the question of whether or not it's appropriation, um, again, I, I, I don't, I don't know to, to just acknowledge the obvious. Like, I don't know that three white guys are the ones to, to kind of answer, answer that question. I think that you can do as much as you can possibly try to do to avoid that. And, you know, look, these were all, you know, musicians that were all credited, um, paid very well. Many of them taken on the subsequent tours and paid very well through that process. Like, and some getting co-writing credits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, look, there, there were some, there were some who, who saw some of the, the, because of their co-writing credits, saw some of the royalties of those album sales. Like there, there are some real practical things. Now, again, how, how much does that change the communities in Africa where this music is coming out of? I, I don't know. So like, while it, while it may help lift up or elevate those individual musicians that music also came from a community and I don't know that the community was benefited from the release of Graceland by Paul Simon. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, 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 yeah. I mean, and so it's for the musicians on this album, great for them um, for, you know, the dozens of musicians in those communities that influenced those musicians. I, I don't know that their lives were any better because of it. Can I ask a dumb question? If this were one of those underdog albums, such as like, and it took 20 years for it to even go gold, would we even care about this question? No, we wouldn't. No. Well, I mean, there's an argument to like, <laughs> when you say that, like there's an argument to be made that since this is so astronomically successful, this is the most racist album that's ever been created. <laughs> right? <laughs> like we could say that. Right. Because of these issues. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that's if no fair. one had bought this album, then it's not an issue. Right. Because right. no because no one's making money off of it. But it right. like goes like diamond practically, yeah. right? I and mean, like it sells so many copies. I think that it's a good point to remind us that it's hard for us to necessarily define what appropriation is. because um, mm-hmm. of the various interests of various communities. 
She's a rich girl. She don't try to hide it. Diamonds on the soles of her shoes. He's a poor boy, empty as a pocket, empty as a pocket with nothing to lose. Sing ta na na, ta na na na. She got diamonds on the soles of her shoes. Ta na na, ta na na na. She got diamonds on the soles of her shoes. She's crazy. She got diamonds on the soles of her shoes. Well, that's one way to lose these walking blues. Diamonds on the soles of her shoes. She was physically forgotten, but then she slipped into my pocket with my car keys. She said, "You've taken me for granted because I please you." Wearing these diamonds. And I could say, as if everybody knows what I'm talking about. As if everybody here would know exactly what I was talking about. I'm talking about diamonds on the soles of her shoes. Here's something I think about this record that I just want to take your guys' temperature on. And I love the album, but I think I feel differently about it a lot than a lot of people. And one of the things that always strikes me about the record is the what feels to me almost entire disconnect between the music and the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm just curious if you all agree with that. Wholeheartedly. It's it's. I mean, so it's not that they're not thought about together. Right. There's no way that they're not composed with vigilance. Like he didn't write the lyrics about vigilance to the music. Right. That's that's obvious in most instances. But emotionally speaking, there still feels to me like there's a buffer between the two. And that the lyrics kind of ride on the top of the music. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm trying to remember what it was. It was a dh1 documentary or something found on youtube and it was it was talking about you know doing doing some interviews with people it was kind of talking about music in africa at the time and in almost kind of making the point as well that like whether it was because of the context of apartheid you know or just that was the music that could get made and in 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 and be produced in Africa at the time. But that was kind of a common thing as well. Like this, this idea of, Oh, really? Yeah. Like, so, so really kind of bouncing music, which, which doesn't, which didn't kind of address anything that was, was all kind of 
surface level. And so in some ways, like it, that's really interesting. I guess in it kind of what we were just talking about. Yeah. But, but again, so I don't know how much of that. So, so it's almost like thinking of Motown, like it's, it's, it's the Barry Gordy thing. Like, okay. Mm-hmm. So like you're going to have this, you know, real like fun, upbeat, you know, bubblegum, like not really, it, it's, it's what makes what's going on. So interesting is, is this idea of like, okay, Motown's going to release this album that seems that's, that's entirely politically motivated. And, you know, and, and, and so that, that kind of same idea of going, I don't know how much of it was in a, in a place where the minority of the people are white people who have money position privilege. And so the musicians in order to make a career in order to make money have to make music that is essentially for, for white, for a white audience. And so if, if you're people living through apartheid, you're not, you can't make music for a white audience that dives into the depth of kind of anything. And so in, in some ways I almost wonder like, is, is, is that actually what's happening here is the fact that Paul Simon doesn't really say anything at all politically motivated or, or really motivated about anything. Like, doesn't seem to be that interested in in saying much of anything lyrically in this album and it is well, i disagree with that point but well it, it, of uh, anything anything of 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 substance in terms of in terms of the world i think there are some heartbreaking things he says about relationships and in in you know clearly what maybe i'm projecting over his recent you know his recent divorce and his his life up to that point but he doesn't really seem to be saying anything about the world of substance like anything about like south african politics yeah or i mean or i mean truthfully like anything about the i mean he he doesn't seem to be interested in in much other than his own heartbreak in the album that's okay. I mean, that's what on the tracks, right? Yeah. <laughs> I want, and again, maybe this is 42 year old, you know, 2023 Rob speaking. Like I want the music that's rec- that's utilizing all of these artists and all of this music. Like I want it to say something powerful and profound on a world stage mm-hmm. and, it, and it doesn't. And so in some ways that feels disjointed and disconnected. But again, if all Paul Simon knows of this music is, you know, the essentially the the radio tapes that are getting mm-hmm. sent to him from South Africa of what's popular in South Africa at the time, then he's also hearing music made by black black artists for a white audience. A man walks down the street, he says, Why am I soft in the middle now? Why am I soft in the middle? Of- rest of my life is so hard I need a photo opportunity I want a shot of redemption Don't want to end up a cartoon In a cartoon graveyard Bone digger, bone digger Dogs in the moonlight Far away my well-lit door Mr. Beer Melly, Beer Melly Get these mutts away from me, you know I don't find this stuff amusing anymore If you'll be my bodyguard I can be your long-lost pal I can call you Betty, Betty when you call me, you can call me out. A man walks-
walks down the street, he says, why am I short of attention? Got a short little span of attention, and oh, my nights are so long. Where's my wife and family? What if I die here? Who'll be my role model now that my role model is gone, gone? He ducked back down the alley with some roly-poly little bat-faced girl. All along, along, there were incidents and accidents. There were hints and allegations. If you'll be my bodyguard, I can be your long lost pal. I can call you Betty, and Betty, when you call me, you can call me out. Call me I think it is is a series of song of uh, Paul Simon lyrics, right? Mm-hmm. That are put over whatever genre or flavor of music he was excited about at that moment, and that that's also a different sort of disconnect, right? I don't think that not only did he not write about the world he was pulling the music from, he didn't even respond to the music he was writing over, right? There's just Paul Simon lyrics on top of this music. Mm-hmm. That's the type of disconnect. I don't know because I think that his melodies are very effective though. Well, so that's, so there's an entire thing and I don't want to get way, too far away from your question, but there's an entire thing about melody in this album. And I think this album is actually almost entirely devoid of what we think of as melody. I think that what you have is sort of a euphony, like in the poetic sense where the language itself and the juxtaposition of the syllables and the way they slam together creates melody, but it's not melodic in the same way. Mm-hmm. It's almost counter counter contrapuntal rhythm to the music. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the most exciting things about it. Like, I think that it is like high art poetry for people who think they don't like poetry, but it's delivered in a very plain spoken way. Mm-hmm. And there are just moments that are incredible that I think like excruciating, excruciatingly great. And it's just a way that he puts some syllables together that feel like melody but it's not melody in the way that we think about melody with Aretha Franklin, right? Or that whoever. Sure. Um, I need to think of a good example of this. I mean, cause we're also talking about like a Greenwich village, you know, folky who mm-hmm. is pulling from like pretty classical folk songs and a lot of like weird gospel songs. And those like old Simon and Garfunkel records is like kind of bizarre. Uh, a lot of Christian stuff on this record too. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, so coming from like very traditional folk music and then trying to keep up with like African like rhythm sections is very, the, the, I mean, the juxtaposition is apparent, mm-hmm. you know, but I, but I mean, I, I think we're on the same page that, that what, what does happen is ultimately very interesting mm-hmm. and, I, oh, and I would say yeah. effective um, also. Even in like blowing the bubble, I mean, I think that that like, you know, uh, millionaires and billionaires, baby, you know, it's just like like mm-hmm. you know, like there's there's catchy stuff on there, and then you hear it again, you're like, wait, what the what the, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> you know, like it's it's I you know, yeah, I, I don't know. Now now I'm I give up. 
mean, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of alliteration <laughs> uh, on "Boy in the Bubble" mm-hmm. that feels like a cheap gimmick lyrically, but I think there's other things that don't rely specifically on alliteration in "Gumboots" and um, and even in "Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes." There's moments in the album I wish I had could play it right now that that feel to me almost like oh my god I can't believe I'm about to say this that feel to me similar to the way that Gerard Manley Gerard Manley Hopkins has like sprung rhythm to his verse. The rhythm and the melody are in the syllables. Honey, take me dancing, and we ended up sleeping in a doorway. While the in the bodegas and the lights on Upper Broadway. Wearing diamonds on the soles of her shoes. That's not a precise quote. Mm-hmm. That flows. Like that swings in a way that the music on the album doesn't swing. Like it's a record that doesn't swing. Like it's a very rigid record. But the the for me, and then when I said earlier that this is one of the most like it was a very formative record for me. It's a way that I realized that the language in this album sings beyond the confines of the actual music. Mm-hmm. And in a way as much as we've talked about the music of the record, I think that's actually a secondary concern because it's really just a platform for his lyricism, which is deceptively simple and incredibly elegant. Mm-hmm. There's a point and you can call me out, which I think is a criminally underrated song. There's an Eddie Berman cover of it. That is just shows that it's really one of those most mournful searching songs I can think of. And it's a, it's a throwaway part. He's like, I'm all alone. alone. There's this line. There were incidents. So Eddie Berman makes this first mm. clear. And it's yeah, yeah, yeah. There were incidents and accidents. There were hints and allegations. Right. And if you look at the play of vowels in that, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. It's and I, I look, no one gives a shit about what I'm talking about right now, but th- there's like, that is like a hallmark of Paul Simon's writing. It's just dumb as such care. Like it'll take a month to write a song. And there is a measured amount of attention to the syllables and the way they bang up against each other and the feeling that they have the cumulative role and emotion that they can have independent of what he's saying, just like the sound of the syllables against yeah. the sound of the music. And I think that's deliriously exciting. Yeah. Well, in the old, in that, in in like that moment, in particular, Dylan, that type of thing, Dylan doesn't do that kind of thing. Yeah. But that, that moment in particular, out. and you can call me out, like, he calls attention to what he had just done too, because he punctuates it with that boom, 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 boom. Like, yeah. you know, like, it's just like, whoa, whoa. Like, so it's a hard, like, it feels like the phrase didn't finish. Mm-hmm. And I think this is what you're getting at. It's like, it's not melody in the way that we think about it. Cause like, there is something very playful and fun and kind of catchy and really interesting. It's like, it feels unfinished. And then you get this like big drum fill and then the big hook of the chorus. And it's just, mm-hmm an endless kind of play with, with the words that he's, you know, Dylan has a lot of fun too, but Paul Simon, I think is much more obviously playful. I think with, with his words a lot. Um, For people to pay attention. Like, I think what's kind of great about it is that like the argument I would make, I was trying to convince someone that they actually like, if they're a Paul Simon fan, but they don't like literature, I'd be like, there's no way you don't like literature if you don't like Paul Simon. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. There's, it's inescapable. I don't, that's a very small sliver of people in the world. Now that's come out of my mouth, but um, yeah, I, I, there's a compositional intelligence and uh, artistry that I find uh, almost unparalleled. Like it's just, it's incredible. Mm -hmm. 
you know, we're, we're talking around this album so much and especially being mindful of, of what time it is. Oh yeah. Let, you know, we, I feel like we've talked so much about the slippery hero that is Paul Simon and some of the complicated things about this album, but this is an album we've definitely selected as our choice to represent Paul Simon in our, in our list, knowing that this makes it so that we can't do any other, we can't do a Simon and Garfunkel album. Like this is the Paul Simon album we've chose. So let's just talk about it. What do you love about this album? What makes Graceland a great album? I think Graceland is a great album because of the, I mean, just straight up because of the lyrics, like with no embellishment. I think that it is um, such an incredibly powerful poetic work. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that that is most what I love about it. I find them with a few exceptions, the song, the title track being the primary exception. I oftentimes find the music distracting from what's going on in the lyrics. And Mm. I don't even, I don't miss or at this point even think about the lack of political context. I just think that some of the writing is so artfully done and kind of what I was saying earlier, just the way that it, the way that the real rhythm doesn't happen with sung notes. It happens with the way syllables are stuck together. I think that's just a towering accomplishment. Joseph's face was black as night The pale yellow moon shone in his eyes His path was marked by the stars in the southern hemisphere And he walked his days under Africa's skies This is the story of how we begin to remember Pulsing of love in the vein After the dream of falling and calling your name out These are the roots of rhythm and the roots of rhythm remain especially in an album with only 11 album with with 11 songs i have a feeling that we may all end up overlapping 
the same five songs, but I'm I'm what definitely down. I'm definitely down to do it. I'm definitely um, down. Yeah, I'll, I'll start us off in order of how they appear on the album. Um, Graceland, which which I think might be might be my favorite song on the album. Um, it, it just just so well done. Um, I, I yeah. I, I could say so many things uh, about it, but, but I really love it. Uh, Diamonds on the soles of her shoes. Um, I think it's the best usage, even though it, I mean, the argument can be made that in homeless, the um, lady Smith, black and Bazo, the, the way their vocals come in is used to greater effect. But I think the way it, the way diamonds on the soles of her shoes starts sets such a tone for the way the rest of that song works. And I think that, I think it's just a really well done song. Um, you can call me Al, which, uh, Makai and I were actually texting today about, I think I I'm with you, Michael. I think it's a, it is a really underrated song. I think because it was kind of the, the big single, um, the, the big like pop single from the album. And then there was the, the video with Chevy chase. They got, you know, played for years and years and years. Um, you know, I I think there's a lot about you can call me Al that you can just kind of glance over without really taking seriously. Um, I think, if for no other reason than on an album with this many incredible musicians, it is the best bass playing that we get on the whole album. I mean, and the the bass just from from go it is the most impressive bass playing and it. Like it's just showing off the whole song. It is nonstop. Solo. I've heard, I saw in some videos someplace, like some guy was recording with him. This is one of the African musicians, the South African musicians. And he's like, Paul, it's my birthday. Can I do something? And he's like, yeah, man, play a solo. And like the reason that little bass break at the end is in that, because it was some guy's birthday. And <laughs> Simon's like, yeah, man, have at it. Oh, man. So good. Yeah. And, and again, like I, I think it's, I think it's a song as well. Like I think lyrically it's saying more than we give it credit for. Um, yeah. I, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's a song that's almost sneaky how, how good it is. Um, so that's three uh, under African skies is four for me. Um, I, I love the way he and Linda sing, sing together. I just think that that's a, it's a great harmony. Um, there are two voices together. And then my fifth would be homeless. Um, you know, again, maybe maybe the best combination of the way Paul Simon's voice blends in. You know, whereas whereas Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes is Paul Simon singing a lead vocal, you know, essentially with Lady Smith Blackman Bazo as the background vocalist. Homeless is the is the only song where it's Paul Simon kind of joining in. And so he's, it's not lead vocal and background vocal. It's mm-hmm. Paul Simon with this choir almost. Good list. Mikhail, what about yours? I guess mine will be pretty similar, but I'm going to start with the boy in the bubble. Uh, I just love that song. You know, the way the camera falls in slow motion. It's just, again, it's just so much of that, the way he uses his voice and all the syllables and the, Phrase where you know, he speeds up real fast, then kind of yeah. you know, it's, there's just a lot of really interesting things that happen. And in the 80s, drums sound like even works for me on that song, where some of them just like, God, this is really uh, abrasive to the ears. It like oddly works, 
Um, maybe it's the accordion. I don't know. It's it's just like it's such a <laughs> a funny. The, 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 all of that works together is really pretty incredible uh, because I'm not someone who really likes 80s drum sounds and accordions and yet I love this song uh, very much uh, Graceland which is one that I would say that the music actually did distract me from it and it took hearing the Justin Towns Earl mm. cover to like really you know um, open it up for me in a way. It's like, oh, I've never heard it that. And I, you know, he's from Tennessee, and I guess it, you know, there's just something about it on his voice mm-hmm. and a guitar that just like really opened it up for me. I reckon that's just what I needed. Um, but now I can I can hear it for what it is, and I, I'm, I'm all in. Um, side one's killer. You can just pick those five, and you have a good five. But then I'm gonna go diamonds on the soles of her shoes. Um, that guitar is dope. We haven't talked about any of like the, the guitar stuff on this record, but yeah. the um, guitar in Gumboots is is tremendous. Oh, it's yeah, yeah. in both like, songs. Like, I I don't I don't know about you guys as, as fellow guitar players, but every time I listen to to Gumboots, I'm like, man, I should really go buy a Roland Jazz Chorus amp. <laughs> it makes me just want to, yeah, go wild. That song rules. Um. I'll say you can call me Al, even though the horn sounds, you know, are kind of like really dated, but it's just, yeah, it's great. Who will be my role model after my role model is dead and all like just, all of it's just, it all works. It all works. Um, even though I feel like in the nineties, it was kind of used in a bunch of like bad movie trailers. I feel like kind of like, like the way like rusted root was kind of used in a lot of like kids movie. You know what I mean? It's just uh-huh. like, I feel like it kind of got, you know, uh, uh, diminished by its association with like other things um, by the time, like 10 years after it came out. Um, also a big fan of Under African Skies, even though the live version, Diamond uh, Silver Shoes also, the, there are two live versions of that that are just the probably the better versions of those two songs. Um, does that put me at five? Mm-hmm. Yep, that's at five. I there's one that neither of us mentioned that I think Michael's gonna call out, and I want to know that I'm right. It's on side two, and I, I feel like he's probably gonna mention it. So I'm, I'm curious to see what his his list is. All right, I think I'm gonna go in the order of of my affection for them, and. uh the first is Graceland. I think it's, I don't think it's the Paul Simon song. I think the Paul Simon song is probably on the first solo record, maybe Duncan, maybe mother and child. Oh, interesting. I think for, um, for this era of Paul Simon, for this era of American music and just for sheer artistry, I think that the song Graceland works better than anything else on the album. I think that it's, um, you know, for all the, trash I talked earlier about Simon being kind of estranged from his own emotions. I find it a deeply affecting, very powerful rumination on, on loss Mm. and how one can get through that loss. Mm. 
and we didn't to we didn't put to bed like what does Graceland mean, but I feel like just the transition, you know. And you you fact check me on it a little bit, but I feel like the motion from someone who's talking about I'm going to Graceland, Memphis, Tennessee, like they're going to see Elvis's spot to where you know they're down there in the shambles of their divorce with their son, maybe not even from that marriage, right? They're from the, that kid's from the first marriage, so mm-hmm. it implies that he's at least from the second marriage, and then they're going to Graceland. And at the very end, he's like, I may be obliged to defend every love and every ending, or maybe there's no obligation now. And the way he delivers that is part of the syllabic mm-hmm. alchemy that I'm talking about in this album. But it's just like that. It's an inc- I think that's an incredible song. I think it's an incredible song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, my second would be You Can Call Me Al. Much in the same way that the, the Justin Towns cover of Graceland broke open that song for you. It's the Eddie Berman cover of that song that, that, that reacquainted me with it because I had, when it came out, I was super in love with it, but I was like, it was in 86, I was 14, it was 12. It was 12. And, um, I kind of thought, wow, that's funny. This song doesn't mean anything. It's like these two guys, I don't know acting goofy. I'll watch it. I'll wait for Tiny Katane to show up on a white snake video. Mm-hmm. And now I think that the production and the video for that song are obscene. I think they're, they're transgressions against what that song actually is. Mm-hmm. It almost feel like he, it's like, it feels like he's uncomfortable with the truth that he's uncovered in that fucking song. Mm-hmm. Right. So he layers on this thing to keep this, uh, both beautiful and a horrible thing distance. Cause it's about loneliness and isolation, right. And seeking to find a wholeness for yourself after you've lived a life where you've just put it off, delayed it. Maybe I'm projecting at this point. I don't know. Like <laughs> these are all in there. And what does he do? He puts Chevy chase in a pink room where they like pretend like they're playing a saxophone and then puts mm-hmm. the layered, like both dressed like Don Johnson, both dressed like both dressed like Don Johnson and then puts the horrible horns on it. It's just like, I, I love the song, but I, I find it deeply offensive how it appears in this album. Hmm. I think the number three for me is Boy in the Bubble. Uh, much for the same reasons. Well, I won't belabor that. I'm tied for number four. And this might be where um, the song, hopefully we're going to be connected on this. I'm tied between Crazy Love and African Skies. Because I think that the chorus of Crazy Love is garbage, but the verses are great. And I think the opposite of this, guys. I think the verses are pretty weak, but the chorus is incredible. Mm-hmm. Now, there's no way to combine them, but I don't feel like they're either really whole songs in the way I think about them. But the first line of Crazy Love, Fat Charlie, the Archangel, sloped into the room. The verb is incredible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? The slope into the room. And then the very end, when he's like, um, or the second verse, some verse, he's like, somebody could walk into your room and somebody could walk into your room and say, your life is on fire. It's all over the evening news. Uh, all about the fire in your life on the evening news. I've from the moment I first heard the song, which was on a well, we haven't gotten in like my deep history with this album, but like I came late to this record, and it was that song and that line in particular that felt like a big clarion call. And then African Skies, the chorus, um, the powerful pulsing in the vein thing. It's just the entire flow of the chorus is incredible. Uh, my final song is Diamonds on the Souls of Her Shoes. Um, it's it's just good. <laughs> it's just good. 
I don't think there's, I, I think this album really only gets bad in the last two tracks. I don't like the mother song. I don't like the Zydeco song and I don't like the fingerprint song. I like the really dated eighties drums really show up at the beginning of the myth of fingerprint song. I don't like those last two songs, but other than that, like it's hard to pick for me. Um, I also don't like it is what it is or the I one like for gumboots, what it's called. I know. What I know. Yeah. I don't really, I don't like that song. I think that's a weak link. Particularly on the first side, I think it's a weak link. Mm-hmm. It's it's the weakest track on on side A. Yeah, Did, was that the song you thought I was going to bring up? No, well, I mean, first of all, what what a disappointment when you get like, oh, the last song is all around the world, or the myth of fingerprints, and then yeah, you man, it, and you're like, wow, like just make it make it four minutes shorter. Just let the album go. <laughs> um, but no, I thought I thought you might like uh, that was your mother. Now, because like really lyrically, did. I'm like. I was like, this is, I mean, that, that gets to like the coldness too, where he like the way he talks about the kid. I'm like, yeah, Oh, yeah. that's, you wanted that on record. Mm-hmm. Like, the thing about that song that doesn't appeal to me is it's just such a, I just find it an irritating sound. Like that song, the music. Yes, I understand that. And I, I only barely even know what you're talking about. Cause I've never been able to listen to it. And as much as I am like banging the drum about Paul Simon's, lyrics and i've probably done that many times in our previous conversations that's mm-hmm. not how i listen first like i listen to how it makes me feel which is pretty linguistic right this is one where i i think the the lyrics and the music have the most like are not or really are not speaking to each other mm-hmm. but i will say that joe strummer loved that song mm-hmm. and said that it's as good as blue suede shoes oh, shit. Uh, <laughs> which i was like yeah, it, like the whole <laughs> quote is him being like, it's like, I think people who've been making music for X amount of time should stop, except Paul Simon, because that song's as good as Blue Switch Shoes. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, pretty wild quote. A long time ago, yeah, before you was born, dude, when I was still single and life was great, I held this job as a traveling salesman that kept me State to state. Well, I'm standing on a corner of Lafayette, state of Louisiana, wondering where a city boy could go to get a little conversation, drink a little red wine, catch a little bit of those Cajun girls dancing beside a I know the idea of, of tracing back, like, here's here's all of these ways in which, here's African music, and here's the ways in which African music are showing up in the American South. And so, like, to to a certain extent, like, you, you have to acknowledge New Orleans in some way. But I, I think the way in which New Orleans is so different, whether it's Zydeco music or whether it's jazz, like the the black music that comes out of new orleans is is so unique even within the context of the rest of the american south mm-hmm. that, it, that it almost feels like in like it feels like this song that shouldn't be on this album well it's the I most africanized place in america <clears throat> i mean with the second line i mean just like the you know it's it's the most 
it, they, there's more preservation of African culture in New Orleans than any other place in America. You know, so it's not that far fetched in my mind um, that there's so much like New Orleans style music. Because if you're in, it doesn't America, it feel like an abrupt, like, jarring departure? It feels really strange to me no, that the record show up. I oh, I don't disagree, and I don't particularly like Zydeco music either. I used when I worked at Universal Studios, we would have Mardi Gras, and they would just blast Zydeco music. So I kind of have like an aversion to it um, <laughs> that I've had to like work through. But I mean, I I mean, those aren't the best moments on the record. That's all I'll say. But we don't have you for much longer. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to get to our number seven on here. Mm-hmm. Um. So. Being the Paul Simon super fan, right? Basically, I'm asking, is this the right Paul Simon album to have on a list that we're trying to make? Like, is is this his best album? Should it? Is there another one that we should consider? Is it Simon and Garfunkel? Is that kind of a better way to approach this artist for this this list of a hundred albums we're trying to make? What 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 do you have to say as a Paul Simon mega fan. The first album that really made an impression on me, which was one of the first albums that made a real impression on me that I would like to carry with me was his first solo album, which I've mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. the 72 Paul Simon. Which you I also wrote about to... for that RS 500. If anyone wants to go find it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, barely, but it's, it's, it's kind of related to that record, but you can hear the really kind of funny story about how he came up with the title of mother and child reunion for you that I say tease tease. Um, but I wouldn't, I think that the Graceland's a better selection to be representative of his work. But I think his best album and the one that I would put on a list would be The Rhythm of the Saints. I think that it's conceptually perfect. I think that in the ways that sometimes the lyrical content doesn't seem to entirely map with the musical intention, I think that's resolved in Rhythm of the Saints. I don't think there's any songs on it that feel like there's a like a Zydeco left arm just jutting out. I think that I mean it's deeply indebted to Brazilian rhythms, but also some African rhythms to an extent too. I think it's um metaphorically speaking, from the point of his lyrics, it has the most potent sort of metaphorical power. I think his writing is not really any better than that. And I think that in the way that to go back to the beginning of this conversation, that I kind of critiqued him for being cold. I think that that fades away much on that album because it's a lot more, it feels a lot less like him observing himself as in a clinical sense and more about him just relating his experience. So it seems like the writing is a lot more immediate. Like he's still self-absorbed in Paul Simon, but the writing feels a lot more immediate than in previous in his careers. I think I used to make an argument that no one ever agreed with. And so I've stopped making it because it just caused fights that that rhythm of the Saints is the best album of the nineties. Um, okay. Yeah, see. I, I, I can see why. There you um, go. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. That's of nineteen ninety? I will never uh, no of the nineteen nineties, uh, not of nineteen ninety. No, I was gonna say I don't even know if it's true for nineteen ninety. Uh, yeah, well come on, man. I guess I'm never gonna uh, thank you for this long relationship that we've had until tonight. I'm sorry. People's instinct of travels by a tribe called Quest, Fear of a Black Planet. Oh, yeah. I know. Jumps I know. I know. I some heavy hitters. I'm just trying to, you know, sort of explain the esteem with which I hold that record. Yeah, I, I get it because I, I, I also love that album. And I think, 
as impressive as like Graceland is, I think the rhythms is, is more impressive of an album yeah. than Graceland. But Graceland has the benefit of having these these mega hits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But like I would take Obvious Child over You Can Call Me Al personally. Oh, I would take Obvious Child almost any song I've ever heard. Almost yeah. any song I've ever heard. Yeah, it's, it's um, a great song. It's um it's practically perfect. Um, you know, can run but I mean proof even I mean like it Born at the Right Time is one of my favorite Paul Simon songs. Born at the Right Time rules. I mean, it's it's also a pretty bulletproof album, start to finish. That doesn't have the baggage of Graceland. It doesn't and doesn't have like the the eighties production over it. There's the, right. you know, it's it it feels closer to maybe what he thought he was doing. Um, and and you know and you know getting all these musicians and getting them to play on the record. You know, it it's not. There's nothing else kind of imposing itself on these different kinds of rhythms and you know musical styles. It's, uh, it's the most. <clears throat> I think it's the most cohesive musically of his solo albums. Um, I I don't know that I think it's the the best of his solo albums, but it's it's definitely one that I I think kind of like you said like doesn't. It, there's nothing that you hear on the album that you're like, Oh man, that doesn't belong. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which makes it, I think a, a, a more enjoyable listen. But again, I, I, I think, you know, then you talk about the 1972 solo album, you know, mean Julio down by the schoolyard, paranoia blues, like piece like a river, like you get all Run of that stuff. body down my guy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, fun, like, that was, that was great. It's great. Um, so I think the question really is, is this like there are, there are phenomenal Paul Simon solo albums and solo solo songs is the best picture of Paul Simon as a solo artist, or are we missing out by choosing him by choosing a solo album from him rather than a Simon and Garfunkel album? Oh, well, the cop out to that is like the best Paul Simon album, if you're going to put it like on Voyager and send it into space and let people discover it, would be the 1991 concert in the park mm-hmm. where he performs the Simon and Garfunkel songs. He performs throughout the solo and they're, they're the, the perfected forms of some of the al- songs from the lesser albums. I know that's a dodge, but um, like if you were going to try to like convince someone to dig Paul Simon, I think that's what you would go with. Mm-hmm. It feels to me like if I was going to. Oh man, like I want to say the rhythm of the saints, but I feel like with your reframing of the question, I feel like the quintessential Paul Simon might be the self-titled solo. Mm. Cause like with mother and child reunion, there's the gesture toward the world music move that he's going to make. I mean, I think that's why it's taken until season three for us to talk about Paul Simon. Cause it has been a question of, well, is it bridge over troubled water? The self-titled album is good. Graceland is kind of the go-to. Rhythm of the Saints is kind of the one that like maybe perfected what he was trying to do with Graceland, even though it doesn't have kind of the the big songs that even that even Bridge Over Troubled Water has. So I think that's why it's taken, and Rob, correct me if I'm wrong, but it has been kind of like a struggle of trying to determine what's the best way to approach this person who started off on his first record with sound of silence, you know, just like, okay, that's an entrance to, to, to music history. 
Um, and then even his last record, Stranger to Stranger, just like still writing incredible, mm-hmm. incredible songs. So I feel like, you know, there's a, there's a lot of right answers, I feel like, with, with Paul Simon. top five albums ready to go and how michael oh man yeah so you've only done this like four times already yeah but in the in the suggestion emails like can it be it can be top five simon it can be top five from 86 whatever i want so i went with 86 because oh cool it's a horrible year for me and a lot of what's wrong with me comes from 1986 so (laughs) i'm going to do my top five sorry the top most influential albums to me from 1986, which also happened to be the top five albums that deformed me as a music listener. (laughs) And as a musician, I'm still in recovery from. Okay. So if, um, if I'm not going to be invited back by saying that rhythm, the saints, the best album of the nineties, I will not be invited back because of at least one of the things I'm about to say, probably in order of release, the albums that most destroyed me that I was most in love with (laughs) from 1986 are, um, David Lee Roth's eat them and smile. Okay. Wow. At that point, until I heard, until I saw the video for Yankee Rose and saw Steve By playing this stupid green guitar, I had only been, I'd been enthralled to my parents' music, which is like Randy Travis and like that new country. Mm-hmm. And then when the Eat em and Smile video came out, I was like, whoa, what is that? I was like, oh, here's <laughs> guitar, right? It's guitar. That was soon followed within a month or so by Poison's Look What the Cat Dragged In. <laughs> Talk dirty to me. I was like, this is amazing. There's chicks too. I mean, really. <laughs> Like I'm burying my soul to you guys right now. There's not much more I can get into. Cause you, this is the year you turned 12. You yeah. Said I was 12. Like, so maybe there's some bad parenting going on here too. Uh, and then the third from that year would be, uh, Cinderella's debut album. <laughs> this does not look, look, look man. Their this second album on cold winter from 88. I still think is a triumph of that genre. I think Tom Kiefer's a really good guitar player. He released a solo album a couple of years ago, which is really bad, but the guitar tone, the guitar tones are really good, which is, I kind of always knew that he knew what sounded good. It's not an evidence on night songs. It was just an instinct that was fulfilled 700 years later. Number four. Oh, I want to say it was Bon Jovi slippery when wet. 
Because even though that's trash, that's better than what it actually was, which was rats dancing undercover. Oh my gosh. Yeah, man. I got that from Columbia House. I was all about that. Because Warren G. Martini, when he plays, uses all four fingers. Like most guys are three-finger players, but Warren D. Martini does four-note phrases. And it's incredible. He's a really talented 80s guitar player. And the final was the guy that I saw my first concert on this tour. It was uh, Four by Huey Lewis in the News. And I saw Huey Lewis in the News with Robert Cray opening on oh. this first show I ever saw. And uh, right there is now you know what's wrong with me. So I the Huey the Huey Lewis album actually holds up, and I'll I'll stand by that with you. So does Night Songs, man. I I heard Huey Lewis in the news at a wedding last weekend, and I was just like, to whoever I was with, I was like, the thing about Huey Lewis is uh, he's great. That's the one I'm least ashamed of. And he probably had, I would have liked to have thought that he had the most formative influence on me, but it was probably the poison or the David Lee Roth. I was thinking we were going to get life's rich pageant. No, man. No, I'm being honest. Like I had to look, I was like, world. I'm really curious what came out in 86, right? Cause I wasn't paying attention to Paul Simon in 86, right? Paul Simon came around 10 years later, right? I was introduced to Paul Simon through 72 and through rhythm of the saints. And then backed in on a big mm. road trip out west, like doing back with a bunch of backcountry camping. And then backed into Graceland from there. Um, I knew the You Can Call Me Out video, but right. it's, come on, that's not a true representation of what, what's going on with that guy. Yeah, you were uh, watching the hair metal videos. You're like, get I was these, watching, I was spending the night with, in Headbangers Ball on Saturday night when I couldn't go out with anyone because I had horrible taste. <laughs> Man, that now I want to figure out my favorite albums when I was. 12 years old. Uh, I'm pretty sure there's things like the Eminem show. I'm sure it's like on things like that. So we'd probably have a lot of, yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe that's a bonus episode. It sounds I, like I, a bonus episode. I will say I'm, I'm, I really do appreciate the baldiness of just like being completely honest and being like, as, as a 12 year old, here's what I was into. And I'll in, in, in not like I'm going to stand by it, but just like, I'm an, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend it wasn't like, no, it was totally there. Like, and I understand exactly why I was there. I liked guitars. Yeah. Once I heard guitars, it's like, man, guitars. And guitars, I mean, when I, over this stuff, I didn't understand the sexism of it at the time. I was like, yeah. guitars, guitar solos. That's yeah. awesome. You saw a spinal tap. And I'm like, these guys are cool. Yeah. I don't know why everyone's yeah. laughing. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Hey, bud, thanks so much for doing this again. It's always good to talk to you. And uh, congrats on the new job. Yeah. Thanks, guys. It's always a pleasure. I appreciate it and uh, look forward to more. It's always fun. Absolutely. We'll talk soon. Yep. Listener, um, man, what a, what a fun time we've had talking to Paul Simon and for you getting to hear so much of uh, Paul Simon's work. One of the things we talked about in our conversation with Michael Washburn was how for both you and him, it was covers of You Can Call Me Out that kind of unlocked that song for you. Graceland for me. Uh, Gra- Graceland for you. You Can Call Me Out for him. For, for me... The, the thing that unlocked Graceland for me was the, the um, tallest man on earth cover that's the B-side of the King of Spain single. And uh, when we let you go, listener, I want to let you go with that cover of, of Graceland because it's, it's just one of my favorites. But before we let you go, Micaiah, to everyone who's listening, what do they need to do? Well, of course, uh, if you like what you heard, please leave a five-star review. And also you can write a review that helps people find the show. That'd be a great benefit to us. Um, Also, if you want to get new episodes as they're coming out, the best thing to do would be to like, follow, subscribe, or whichever your podcast carrier provider, whichever, um, you know, tells you to do. Um, Please do that so you can stay up to date with all the, you know, all the stuff we have coming out for this new season. Listener. We'll see you next week. The Mississippi Delta shining like a national guitar. I am following the river down the highway to the cradle of the Civil War. I'm going to Graceland, Memphis, Tennessee. I'm going to Graceland. 
She comes back to tell me she's gone. As if I didn't know that. As if I didn't know my own bed. As if I never noticed the way she brushes her hair from her forehead. She said, "Loose in love is like a window in your heart." Everybody sees you're blown apart. Everybody feels the wind blow. I'm gonna Graceland, Memphis, Tennessee. I'm gonna Graceland. City. She calls herself the human trampoline. And sometimes when I'm falling, stumbling, tumbling in turmoil, I say, "Whoa, is this what you mean?" She says, "We're bouncing into Graceland." I see loose and love is like a window in your heart. Everybody sees you're blown apart. Everybody feels the wind blow. I'm gonna Graceland, Memphis, Tennessee. I'm gonna Graceland.